welcome to the At Peace Parents podcast. I'm Casey, and I'm here to empower you in your decision-making as a parent of a demand-avoidant child. My goal is to share insights that will generate aha moments and support your connection with your child. I'm a mom of two amazing little boys, one of whom is PDA, and I've worked with hundreds of parents just like you to teach them how to lead their child out of burnout and find the clarity, peace, and sense of community they need. What are your most secret and inappropriate questions about PDA? So this was a question I asked the Instagram community in my stories, and I framed it as such, thinking that I would get all these questions about my personal life, which I did. But I was asked a lot of questions about PDA and autism. Hi, everybody. That actually didn't seem inappropriate or secret to me at all. And it made me think about doing a live that I could turn into a podcast episode for you guys, answering some of what you consider to be secret and inappropriate questions in the most honest way possible, in the most objective way possible, so that you have answers to your questions without feeling the shame of asking them. So I hope this serves you. I've brought five questions that I'm going to answer from sort of a scientific perspective, a large and perspective, meaning the thousands of parents I have now interacted with. Um, and the five questions are the following. Can you have PDA light? Um, two, is PDA always autism? Three, what happened to an older generation of PDAers? Four, can trauma cause PDA? And five, do you think autism and PDA are more common now, or do you think it is because there's different diagnostic tools that they're more um, being diagnosed more frequently? So before I answer these questions, I first want to say hello. Hello, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. Um, and to situate you guys within where I perceive my role in the scope of history and the scientific process around building an understanding of PDA as a neurotype. Because it's really important that I clarify the degree to which I have certainty or uncertainty around these things before answering these questions. Okay, and I'm going to illustrate what I mean by this by giving a little bit of an anecdote about my own research as a doctorate candidate in my in my past life. Okay, so there are many different aspects of the scientific process. And right now, I am, I believe I am sort of in the like very inductive data gathering, developing hypotheses part of this whole process. And what I mean by that is like, when a researcher is starting a research project, trying to figure something out, often the question comes from two places. Either there's a bunch of things written about the topic and there's debates in the literature, meaning like one person says this and another person says this, and you're trying to prove one side or the other. We don't have that in the PDA space because not that much has been written about it. The only debates that exist really are, does it exist or does it not? right? Which is not like a big body of literature that we have to draw on. And it's not 
data driven in the sense that much of it is asking parents to observe behaviors rather than like the science of the brain and the nervous system and testing cortisol levels and heart rate variability and all the things that you can do in science, right? The other place that scientific questions and research topics come from is what's called an empirical puzzle. An empirical puzzle is just something that you observe with your own two eyes that just doesn't make sense according to the literature and the evidence that exists right now. So in my own doctoral research, my empirical puzzle was in Colombia, where there was a civil war and there were these two villages that had been impacted in the same way by the civil war and one the villagers rebuilt and did peace building and the other did not and they were right next to each other so i was like why is that the case the same is true for our kids and and this empirical puzzle that many of us stumble upon when all the traditional parenting books don't apply and then all the traditional autism supports don't apply and the logic of everything it's like creating this puzzle of like none of this makes sense right so all of us have this empirical puzzle and so i'm situated as a parent coach with a research brain as someone who has now two years of experience in the field and can see the bird's eye view in the large n sample However, these are still hypotheses and my role is not as like a scientist in a lab to test the hypotheses in a randomized way that's unbiased, right? Like I obviously have a biased sample. It's people on Instagram and people who, you know, pay for coaching sessions. So it's probably going to be people more like me <laughs> that you identify with in some way. So it's very biased what I'm going to say. But given this caveat, I want to answer these questions for you as honestly as possible. Okay, so the first question, can you have PDA light or are there different degrees of PDA? And this question, I think people think it's a secret or inappropriate question because it's sort of veers into the like high functioning versus low functioning autism, which is like in the neurodiversity space, not something you're supposed to say. Okay. So how I want to frame this for you is twofold. One, I think the first part of the question, you either, I think you either have PDA or you don't, you either have a survival drive for autonomy that consistently overrides other survival instincts like safety, eating, toileting, sleep, um, hygiene or and or hygiene, or it doesn't disable you from those things. You can still have quite a need for autonomy, but it's not going to disable you. That's my that's my definition. That's not necessarily the PDA society's definition. However, empirically, or with my own two eyes and the testimonies of all the parents, many of whom are neurodivergent or PDA themselves, so it's not completely biased towards neurotypical. Um, there is quite a bit of variability in the degree to which the threat response disables the child and where the threshold is of tolerance. So meaning like, how quickly the stressors accumulate from every perceived loss of autonomy and equality to a point where it's starting to disable. 
So there is quite a bit of variability. And one of the ways, one of the places that I see this is like when we fill out the EDAQ, the extreme demand avoidance questionnaire, I can see a distribution of cases, right? So the parents whose children score much lower on the EDAQ are often those that are higher masking, that don't have an early autism diagnosis, and who are more socially oriented just because of how this research instrument is designed. And the pattern I see is that those children can often access things like school or more neurotypical parts of society versus some of the higher scores. But remember, the scores can be variable. And often the children with the higher scores are less socially oriented, less high masking, and may have received an early autism diagnosis. So this is not to say that there isn't also social disability, meaning like the children wouldn't be um, disabled if they weren't being shoved into like, we all have to go to school and do sticker charts, which can be disabling for lots of children, not just PDA. Um, but I but I would argue, I think there's also a medical disability here where it does impede these like basic functions of how bodies work, like the ability to toilet, right, and and to eat. Okay, so I, I would argue, this is my perspective, that it's not just a social disability. It's a nervous system disability. And yes, you either have it or you don't. However, the degree to which the threat response and your child's threshold of tolerance, deg the degree to which that disables their ability to access what they need to live, it varies. I also want to say, when I think about brains and when I work about with families, I'm less focused on diagnoses. That's not my that's not my bailiwick. I'm sorry, I'm such a dork. I'm not a clinician, but I think about the brain in different dimensions. So like I think about it in sensory, executive functioning, social communication, the perception of autonomy and equality as related to nervous system, the nervous system itself. And then there's obviously the temperament. There is mental health, like is there generalized anxiety? Is there OCD? And then on top of that, because there's a relationship with autoimmune differences and disorders with autism and neurodivergence, there's also that. Okay, so like basically my role is to help you isolate this nervous system and autonomy variable. But whether your kid is autistic or ADHD or not diagnosed with any uh, anything, it's very helpful if we can separate these dimensions and then accommodate each one, right? So like my son, for example, has very sensitive sensory issues. Like that's one of the main things we work on. His executive functioning was almost non-existent. For example, like I remember after we did eight months of neurofeedback specifically on, I thought we were working more on trauma, but it was like actually working more on executive functioning. The first time he ever took two things and put them together in an organized way. And it was like, he's playing with these bones of different materials. Like it would be like a felt bone that's blue and another one that's blue. And then there's a two rubber white ones and he would always just mix them up. But I remember seeing him start to organize them like at the age of like almost six, right? It was like 
the executive functioning piece was coming into play. And so that's how I really think about things when I'm explaining it to you. And I would encourage you, uh, if it's helpful, to use that logic with your child, like rather than just like this, like label, it's like, okay, what could be going on here? Is this a sensory driven avoidance? Is this um, a social communication difference that they're cause it's causing avoidance. Is it the PDA element, which is the perception of threat based on autonomy and equality, etc. So when I talk about like, can you have PDA light? That question, we have to unpack it and understand that like the child might also be disabled by something else other than autonomy, right? Like if they have very high support needs around social communication, that's going to make it harder for them not necessarily to eat and sleep and toilet, which could be the PDA component, but to, um, you know, operate in neurotypical society, which gets into the social disability model. I don't want to get too wonky, but this is just how I think about things. Okay. So that's my answer to number one. Number two, is PDA always autism? My hypothesis is yes, <laughs> with a million caveats. Okay, so often parents ask this question not because it's like they're really confused about like, is my child just highly sensitive and spirited or ADHD, just ADHD? in terms of trying to understand the brain, they're asking it from a place of fear. And I don't say this with any judgment because I was exactly the same way of like, if it could just be anything but autism. I mean, I'm talking like five years ago. And so when parents ask me that question, I first push back a little bit about like, are they just pushing that question because they're afraid of the connotations of autism, right? Also, we have to understand that autism is a hugely broad category in the DSM-5, but in also, also in reality, right? So in the DSM-5 in 2013, Asperger's and pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified was scooped into the DSM of autism. So it really encompasses a lot of different, quote, neurotypes in the DSM-5. But if we just think of autism as not just a social communication quote disorder, but a different way of sensing and perceiving the world, then I think it makes a lot more sense to many parents. I would also say that like, you know, when we're thinking about the dimensions, it doesn't really matter if it's ADHD or autism. What matters is like, how are they struggling and where do they need support? Is it more around sensory or more around social communication? I will also say that from my experience, both with my own son and with coaching families, that even if you don't think your kid is autistic, it is very helpful to work through the autistic lens in terms of supporting their communication. Because even though they're like, quote, verbal and high functioning and all the things we're not supposed to say in the neurodiversity affirming space, but I say them because I'm also trying to connect to parents who are just coming into this journey. Um, they have a different way of processing language. So like a couple of things that are enormously helpful for connecting with kids with different social communication modes is like slowing down your language, using one sentence at a time to reduce the complexity, 
understanding that they may have gestalt language processing, which is like they're not processing entire nuanced contextual phrases at the same time. It's word by word, which can appear like different processing. And then also they learn, and you may have noticed this, my son is the same way, like when, for example, we were trying to do this Pokemon app that he wanted me to download yesterday. And I am someone who wants like the big picture first, like what is the app? Then what are we going to do with it? And then what are the details, right? I don't want like the details first because I don't even know what app I'm looking for. But many of these autistic children go like from the bottom up in the way that they learn like experientially. So he's talking to me about exactly like what he wants to put on his Pokemon card. He's like talking about like peace snow, which is like a picture he made of his um he had this ice thing that he makes and puts orange juice in it. So he's talking about this like really detailed small thing that has nothing to do with the app, but it's because he's thinking from the bottom up. Okay. And that is an autistic way of learning. So, so I, I would just invite people to like, just forget about like, is it autism or is it ADHD and just focus on how you can help your child and your relationship with them. That's what I would suggest. Um, so I think most of the, I think it PDA is part of the autism spectrum, but other people would disagree and that's okay. It's a hypothesis. Remember? Okay. Three, what happened to an older generation of PDAers? This is a pretty weighted question and one I've thought about myself. And here I'm going to get into both my empirical observations from coaching because I do have like in my head what proportion of parents end up being neurodivergent themselves or PDA identifying themselves, both in my coaching programs, in my paradigm shift program, in my coaching. So I have a very large group of data, right? Of like, oh, this is an interesting pattern. Um, And I think about this question in a more philosophical way as well. So a couple patterns I've seen, I think, I think often grandparents or parents, if one grandparent or one parent is PDA and or autistic, but they're undiagnosed, right? And so they've often learned to operate in a neurotypical world, but behind the scenes had like extreme anxiety (laughs) and, you know, panic. There's also often in families a history of like, mental illness or mental illness being diagnosed as mentally ill, but it could be obscuring other patterns and also addiction. Okay. And I'm just talking about this objectively, not in a normative way, but this makes a lot of sense because if you read Neurotribes by Steve Silberman, which is the history of neurodiversity and autism, he talks about in family trees, it's like a mixture of disability, mental illness, and genius in family trees where there is neurodivergence. Okay. So often I also see a lot of parents who have internalized PDA presentations, meaning they weren't explosive necessarily, like my my child has a much more externalized uh, expression of PDA. And I also do think, and 
people can disagree. This is less empirical and just hypothetical. I do think there's a degree of intergenerational trauma, like trauma compounding and coming out with our kids, right? Of like in the 1920s, like you can't, you couldn't do the type of things our children do in terms of behavior and not end up institutionalized. And so like, there was probably a lot of repression and internalization. And I do think it compounds over generations. Anyways, that's just my opinion. Okay, fourth, can only trauma only cause PDA, meaning like, maybe your child wasn't neurodivergent or PDA, and then they have a traumatic experience, and then they become PDA. So this is also a nuanced question. It's one I've talked about with like a very brilliant medical doctor who works in this space because I was like adamant about the fact that like, no, children are born with PDA. Like I could see something different in my son from the moment he came out and there was dysregulation from the moment he could came out. And so many of the families I work with, there's this experience where like the parent could not soothe the child. There was constant dysregulation and avoidance of things like breastfeeding. When you're trying to like breastfeed the kid, they reject it or the, not the kid, the baby. But the argument against me was a valid one, which was like, well, neurodivergent brains are more susceptible to trauma. And what if it happened in utero or doing like during pregnancy or during birth. And I thought about that and I was like, that would make a lot of sense. Like I had severe birth trauma. I also almost got shot in DC while I was like one week away from my son being born. It's a crazy story. I won't tell it right now. <laughs> but definitely all the stress hormones going on. And then I had like this severely traumatic birth that ended in an emergency C-section. We both lost oxygen. And so when I did a preliminary survey, I asked that question of like, did you experience um, birth or pregnancy trauma? And 14 out of the 15 respondents said yes. So that made me less confident about my hypothesis. So I don't think that trauma causes PDA, like a six-year-old has a traumatic event and they were totally neurotypical and then they quote, become PDA. I do think there's a possibility that because our children are neurodivergent from birth, it's a neurotype, it's genetic, they are more susceptible sensorily, perceptually to trauma, like where stimuli would not be traumatizing to a neurotypical brain, but the same stimuli could be to a neurodivergent brain. So that's one I'm not sure about. I think children are born with PDA. Um, that, like, that's my hypothesis, but I can see the argument the other way. Okay, finally, fifth question. What do you think? Is it, are these inappropriate questions or are you guys thinking they're okay? <laughs> Um, I think they're fine. Okay. Do you think autism and PDA are more common now, or do you think it's because we have different diagnostic tools? Okay. So I think about this question a lot and I talk about it in the privacy of my own home. So I thought, why not talk about it here? I think mostly it's because we have different diagnostic tools, which ties into the third question about like what happened to an older generation of PDAers. But 
as I mentioned before, I think there's also intergenerational trauma that doesn't necessarily make more kids PDA, but it makes the behaviors more pronounced and like less able for society to just overlook them, right? Like I can't imagine my son just like turning internalized if I had continued traditional parenting because it was the 1950s, right? Like if I had not taken a different path with him, I think he would have ended up suicidal institutionalized or in a hospital. So, you know, I wonder sometimes like, you know, are these kids like becoming more and more externalized because of intergenerational trauma? Okay, so those are my five inappropriate and secret questions that you asked. I hope that it served you. Um, and I hope you guys have a great day. Thanks everyone for being here with me at the At Peace Parents podcast. This is your source for all things related to understanding, supporting, accommodating, and advocating for your PDA child. To go deeper on any of these topics, check out my course offerings and masterclasses at the website www.atpeaceparents.com.